1: My friend Andrew, who was sitting at the table when we first started the recovery center, said, uh, "Well, then run for office."
2: And I was saying, thought to myself, "No way." Let me ask you: <laughs> At the moment that he said, "Well, you should run for office," how long had you been sober at that time?
1: Um, gosh, I was probably just a
2: year sober at that time, maybe a little less. I'm Jason Kander, and this is Majority 54. Been a big week for me for a few reasons. We launched the pre-order campaign for my book, Outside the Wire, including the gifts that you get for pre-ordering the book. And one of those gifts is that you get to tell me what message I'll write. You get to customize it, the inscription that's going to go in your book. And some of the stuff that people want me to write is, is pretty funny. Some folks are just blasts from the past, and then others have creative and, and hilarious stuff. Pretty sure I have to learn how to draw animals. And in other news, I'm always telling you to grab an oar, to do everything that you can for your community. In that vein, this week I announced that I'm running for mayor of my hometown of Kansas City. But that's not the subject of today's podcast. Today we're talking to someone who hit rock bottom, climbed out, and dedicated his life to reaching back down and pulling other people up. One of the running themes that you might have noticed about this show is that we think that people who have firsthand experience in working with a social issue tend to be better at making laws about that issue. Today's episode is no different. Phil Spagnuolo is a state representative in New Hampshire. Last year, he flipped the seat from red to blue for the very first time in the history of that state. During the 2016 campaign, President Trump came to New Hampshire and he made a lot of claims about the opioid epidemic and his plans to solve it. As you might have guessed, there's been no progress on this issue from the Trump administration. But there has been progress from Phil Spagnuolo. He's a certified substance misuse recovery coach who basically founded his own clinic. Phil says he's here today, alive on this earth, because of Medicaid. And now he's in a position to defend Medicaid from the inside so that it can help other people stay alive. Here is my conversation with State Representative Phil Spagnuolo about his own battle with addiction, what he's learned, and what he's trying to teach his colleagues.
1: So I, you know, I moved back to New Hampshire 10 years ago. Prior to that, I had struggled uh, for many years with with many substances um you know, but never opioids and uh I came back to New Hampshire um, my family helped me buy a restaurant um I had been in the restaurant business twenty years prior to that and um, you know that's when oxycotton kind of hit the scene and uh had some friends bring some in and uh, I tried it and um you know it didn't take long before it was a it was uh really devastating to my life uh and and the life of many
2: of my friends. Tell me more about that. I mean, you said it didn't take long. Yeah. So
1: I think, um, you know, that when I tried it, um, it gave me that sense of ease and comfort that, that I had, you know, been really been searching for, for a long time because, you know, I I started out with substances, you know, experimenting, but I found that it really helped to make me feel almost normal in a lot of cases. And, uh, you know, so when, and when I finally tried opiates, it was really, uh, the most, um, the most calming and like sense of, uh, okay that I had ever felt. And, um, you know, so within, I think within a few weeks of like doing it on and off, I, I really, it, it really, uh, I became addicted and, and I, I didn't really know that. Um, I, I, you know, when I didn't have it, I felt a little sick and I was like, this is weird. And, you know, then eventually I realized that, it was because I didn't have them in my system. So I would continue to put them in my system. And before long, it was just, I had to, there was no choice.
2: And then it went from Oxycontin to other stuff, right? Yeah. So I
1: was doing Oxycontin for a period of a couple of years. um, And then I sought treatment from that. And uh, I got out of treatment and you know, I, I, I didn't do well. I didn't have any, there was no follow-up care. I didn't know what to do. And, um, I eventually went back to the Oxycontins and that's when I then transitioned to heroin and then went back to treatment, uh, a couple of times uh, during that.
2: And you, you know, earlier you and I had breakfast this morning and and you, you made a, an analogy to cancer treatment, you know, the way drug treatment, uh, is administered, uh, versus treatment of, of an illness like cancer. Mm -hmm. Um, Share that again if you would
1: so with with most chronic illnesses there's there's the initial care right the diagnosis the care and then there's lots of follow-up care um, somebody that has diabetes and I hate to just use cancer because that's a that's such a strong powerful word but
2: but, it's, as but an you example, you mentioned it because it's you've seen it in your family yeah yeah my
1: daughter um, was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma when she was 15 years old and so you know, she went through all of the the treatments and and, and there was lots and lots of follow-up up care for that, for that illness that, that she had. And, um, you know, with, with uh, substance misuse disorder, what we do is we make the initial diagnosis, right, and then we we throw them into treatment for 28 days, and then that's it, right? There's no follow up, there's no um, after care, so to speak, or there hasn't been for many years. We're starting to figure that out, right? But um, you know, there's we don't treat it as a chronic illness, right? We're still treating it as. Um, a moral failing, um, a criminal issue, you know, as much as we like to talk about the fact that we're not, we still are. And, um, we're not treating the, um, you know, the substance issue coupled with the mental health issues that most have the trauma issues that most have. We're not, we're not treating the overall person as we do with most illnesses. Um, Mm -hmm. we're, you know, we're, we're just, we're throwing a little bit of time and a little bit of, of, uh, you know, separation from the drug and a little bit of understanding of why you do what you do, but then it's like, you're on your own and then what, right? The same coping skills that I lacked when I got to treatment and the same, uh, internal turmoil that I had when I got to treatment still exist when I leave app 28 days later. Right, but so there's there's part of the yeah. the the disconnect when we're dealing with this issue.
2: We almost do it like it's surgery. Like you're yeah. going to go in, we're going to take this thing out of right, you. That's right. that's a problem, and and sew you up, and you're good. But the truth is, like you still have the problems you had that caused this in the first and
1: place. And Quite frankly. Um, what happens is the reason that people, most people uh, use substances is because the, of the internal turmoil that they don't know how to manage, whether it's, you know, mental illness related, trauma related, or just overall lack of coping skills, right? Where those things still exist when, when you leave treatment. So it's, it's you're set up for failure, and that's why the success rate of of a 28 day program is is horrible when mm-hmm. as compared to treatment of most illnesses. Mm-hmm. Right.
2: Well, I guess that's where the term self medicating comes from. Sure. Right. Um, okay. So let's pick back up with your story. So you end up with a heroin issue. Mm-hmm and And what happened from there, so I got out
1: of jail, and um I came back to Laconia. Well, my mom lives here in laconia, and um you know i i had nothing I had no job I had no money i had I had nothing right so i uh I ended up moving in with her and um started seeking treatment. Uh, I was trying to get a, a licensed alcohol and drug counselor to help, you know, to talk to. I was trying to get a psychiatrist to talk to. I was trying all of these things and I was hitting roadblock after roadblock after roadblock because I didn't have insurance and I didn't have money and all of those things. So, um, I finally, uh, signed up for Medicaid and, um, got approved for Medicaid and, um, started seeking these treatments. But during this time I got, I was really frustrated because it was really difficult. Right. And like, I'm a pretty aggressive person. Like when I believe that I, I can, you know, something needs to be done, I'll, I'll do it. But most people that I have seen along the way don't right? they, they ask for help, they don't get it. And they're like, okay, I tried. And you know, they end up dead or they end up, you know, in
2: jail or they end up, you know, which I, When you're struggling with a problem like like substances, I would imagine any roadblock can feel massive. Absolutely. And And
1: because you know, you like the stigma is real and you know that you're being judged. And so when you finally build up the courage to ask for help and admit, right, that you have this issue that's so stigmatized, um, and then you don't get the help, it's it can be mm-hmm. devastating and, and it can really be life
2: ending for, for people. So uh, Medicaid entered the equation.
1: Yep. So I got on Medicaid and I started getting uh, treatment. I was going to a psychiatrist. I was going to a licensed alcohol and drug counselor. Um, you know, and then I was, I was doing the 12 uh, step fellowship uh, programs as well. And um, you know, my, My life started to get better, and I started to have a better understanding of how difficult it is for people like me to get help. And so I um, called up the mayor of Laconia, and I asked for a meeting with him. And I kind of shared shared my story, like I'm doing with you, right? I told him a little bit about my past, and you know, then I talked about how difficult it was for people like me to get help. And I was like, "What's what are you doing?" And he was like, "He didn't really have any answers." He said, "But there are these people that are meeting." Um, on Tuesday nights in this church basement that are trying to figure, the community members trying to figure out how they can help. You know, they were community members that were committed to trying to to do something in this area. And so I joined them and we worked really hard to form a nonprofit and get some funding. And uh, we opened a recovery center in Laconia. And then I got some training and I became a recovery coach. And Um, You know, but as I'm doing all of this, I'm still frustrated with the system and the lack of help and all of those things. And, you know, I started to realize that the federal government's not going to bail us out of this. The state government's really not going to bail us out of this, like until we get community members to to do what these folks were committed to doing and that, that I was lucky enough to be part of like, we're not going to really have an impact uh, on this. And if we sit around and wait, people are just going to die uh, at a, at a higher level than they already are. And we're looking at 60,000 deaths this year from, from overdoses. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, unacceptable more people die in one year from overdoses than died during the entire Vietnam war. Right. Right. Like if it was anything else that was, that were killing our citizens, Mm -hmm. there would be, uh, there would be a huge effort to stop it. Right. If it was, you know, any, any other disease or plague or however you want to do it. Right. Like there would be a, a, a public outrage and, you know, government would be forced to 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 mm-hmm. do something about it, but because we we either consider this our little dirty dark secret, or or we just believe that people are making that choice and oh well, too bad for them, mm-hmm. right? We don't we're not having that. Uh, so, anyways, I you know I got involved with the recovery center, we did with all that, but I I started to get frustrated with the system that I saw as broken, and I saw that the you know the government would. You know, we'd hear all of these speeches from all of these politicians about how they were going to fix the opioid problem. They were going to dedicate all these funds, and none of that was happening. And I, you know, so I started complaining to some local politicians. And my friend Andrew, who was sitting at the table when we first started the recovery center, said, uh, "Well, then run for office." And I was thought to myself, "No way." (laughs) Let me ask you:
2: at the moment that he said, "Well, you should run for office," how long had you been sober at that time?
1: Um, gosh, I was probably just a year sober at that time, maybe a little less. Okay. Um, when I first like that that thought was put in my head, and uh, you know, I <clears throat> I just didn't think that it was a it could be a reality for someone like me, right? With a, a guy with my past and my issues and all of that. But you know, what I realized over time was that if there's an issue that needs to be addressed, like you need somebody that's that survived that issue to bring that perspective to other people so they can understand and they can see what the face of somebody that's actually struggled with that and, and know them on a personal level. And also like, see that, you know, my commitment to this issue, right. If, if I'm not committed to this issue, then, then who's going to be right. 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 Like this is, this is about my life and about the people that, you know, that I see on a daily basis. And so, Anyways, I, you know, I started to consider running for office and, and, and I kind of thought it was a pipe dream really all the way up until the, the final election results came in. Did I not think that I had any chance, you know what I mean? And as, uh, as I got the initial, uh, results from the first ward and I had one, I was like, this is, this is surreal, right? <laughs> but, uh, you know, but so I've kind of like realized that along the way that unless people step up and and commit themselves to whatever whatever the issue is and it doesn't have to be the opioid issue it could any issue that 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 we face as a nation right we can sit back and we can complain about it all day long but if we're not taking steps to help to uh either force some changes in policy that affect these issues or or you know get involved in organizations that that try to help with these issues we're we're never going to make any progress in these in these you know we've got too much there's too much talk you know i have a friend that loves to say they talk we die like mm. and that's that's the reality of this of this situation and you know for me it's just um, I've seen a need in in other areas, like the recovery center was like my first glimpse into like service to my fellow, uh, you know, residents, uh, you know, in the in this area um, of giving them a place where they can go and they can ask for help, and we can help them navigate the all the obstacles and hurdles that that will be presented, right? And somebody there with them that's been through it that can help them now get mm-hmm. through it and
2: it it feels like there's a couple of times in the story you've just told me where you had to confront a stigma right like first oh absolutely first there was a stigma for you around going and um and and enrolling in medicaid uh you know that was you you had to confront the the fact that you like you said a minute ago you know you're being judged Uh, But then after that, after going through all of that and making that change for yourself, then then you had to confront the stigma that people have with someone who has been through what you've been through – and, and really putting yourself on display in the ultimate way by, by running for office.
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, for me, like the, I grew up, uh, my father's a, an immigrant. He worked really, really hard to provide for us as a family, myself and my two sisters and never took any help from anybody. And so I grew up with that. Like you, 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 you know, you do what you have to do to provide for your yourself and your family, right? And, and not, you don't need anybody to help you. So for signing up for Medicaid for me was like crushing, like the fact that I had to do that i had gotten myself to a place in in life that i had to do that and so you know um yeah you know when it comes to the stigma around those things it's it's really makes things difficult it makes people really not want to ask for help because of the stigma and it's one of the things really like the biggest uh obstacle to people seeking treatment is is the stigma that's attached to it right Mm -hmm. and um i guess that you know for me um once i once i was able to i got on medicaid i think i was only on medicaid for maybe 7 or 8 months and then i got a full time job i got private insurance i you know I, I got off of that and 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 i hear people say all the time that you know medicaid is a uh, is a um, You know, it's something that people are stay on forever and they just use the system and they abuse the system, right? Like that's the biggest argument for the opposition on Medicaid. Mm -hmm. But the truth is, is that a very small percentage of people actually abuse that system. And most people. Use it as a as a way as a hand up, right? It's not a handout. It's right. a it's a hand up. Like in my case, that's exactly what it was. And I've seen many many people look, living on 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 uh, Medicaid and and welfare and all of that stuff is, it's just not something that most people want to do. But people find themselves in positions where they have to for mm-hmm. a period of time, right? And I and I, and I think that for me, like I I've been able to see lots of people use that system to get you know, get the help that they need and then
2: become productive members of society. And we don't hear those stories very often. Well, I mean, look at your example, like even even putting aside for a moment the fact that you're now a member of the House of Representatives in New Hampshire who's working on this issue to try and help people across the state. Just the fact that it's put you in a position where now you run a recovery center. I mean, you, you, you help people every day in your day job with these issues. I mean, that's a pretty good return on, you know, the, the time that you spent on Medicaid, pretty good return for the taxpayer. Yeah,
1: return on investment, for sure.
0: If you're like me, the list of books that you want to read or those that people suggest that you read is never-ending and always expanding. I actually have a stack of books next to the bed just waiting, beckoning for me. And I don't have the time to read them all. Uh, thank goodness that Blinkist has decided to sponsor their show, so we— <laughs> Found out that it exists and saw the incredible library <laughs> that's available there. Yes, yeah,
2: so that we know that it exists. That's excellent <laughs> reason.
0: And now you do too. Yes. Blinkist is the only app that takes thousands of the best-selling nonfiction books and distills them down to their most impactful elements so that you can read or listen to them in just under 15 minutes, all on your phone. Jason, what do you think your book's going to be like when it's on Blinkist?
2: I think it'll be, first of all, riveting. And, <laughs> and as, as it is in the longer format. Uh, but I do concede that it will probably have, it'll probably cut out my description of the Taco Bell reward system <laughs> that I've created. I don't
0: think Taco Bell is going to make it in.
2: Yeah. And that's a shame because that's a pretty valuable part of the book. But yeah,
0: it's a big lesson. It's a big lesson that you've learned in life yeah, about the Taco Bell. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's good, are really good motivation. really enjoy it. Good motivation stuff.
0: Blinkist is just constantly curating and adding new titles from the best of lists. So definitely you're getting in there. So you're always getting the most powerful ideas. In a made-for-mobile format, 5 million people are already using Blinkist to expand their minds 15 minutes at a time. So get started today.
2: Right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. You can go to Blinkist.com slash Majority54 to start your free trial to get three months off your yearly plan when you join today. That's Blinkist. It's spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash Majority54 to start your free trial or get three months off your yearly plan. Linkus.com slash majority 5-4. One of the things that's interesting is in your campaign from the very beginning, you told your story. And and so, it, you know, when you announced it was it was in the paper, like, uh, this is why I'm running. This is who I am. And then you start knocking on doors. And you had mentioned to me that as you're knocking on doors, people are like, oh, you're you're that guy. So at each door, you are confronting that stigma very directly.
1: Yeah. And, you know, for me, like one of the reasons that I decided to run was that I figured I didn't have a chance to win, but I figured at least I could show people in recovery that it's possible to achieve things and, and to not have to hide from your past. Uh, and, you know, also to show people that don't really understand this issue and who think that we all sleep under bridges and, you know, drink out of brown paper bags and all of those things, that we're real people. We we have the ability to be productive. Uh, and, you know, I think that that's by, by doing that, I was helping to break the stigma. So I wasn't afraid. I, you know, Look, I. Uh, truth be told, I was a little nervous about the fact that now I put myself out on display and, you know, what's going to come, you know, out of my closet that that's going to, you know, be uh, devastating to the fact that, you know, I'm trying to win this campaign. But I didn't really honestly like that wasn't uh, that wasn't a, a point where I was like, I'm not going to do this because I'm afraid of that. I'm I just going to uh, do it and and hope that uh, people would understand because you know, most people have things in their past that they're not proud of. Right. And, and, and so I guess that for me, I just wanted people to know that it's okay. Like I I'm here. I I'm admitting that I've made mistakes in my life, but I'm also showing you that I've been very productive and since then, and, and, and doing these things. And, and it was a great experience, like just overall, like talking to these people, knocking on their doors and, you know, them telling me their personal stories about their, their loved ones who are struggling or have struggled and, you know, and really, um, Really reinforced that I was doing the right thing by you know I I had women standing there crying telling me about their grandchildren or about their child and you know um, how difficult it's been and you know that they've tried so hard to get help and and the help just isn't available. That's that's a theme that I heard over and over and over again. There's not enough help, and the help that is available is really hard to attain.
2: In a district that Trump in 2016 won by 13 points. You won. Yeah
1: no one was more surprised than i was <laughs> honestly um, yeah but you know one of the coolest things that came out of the whole campaign for me was that people in recovery came up to me afterwards and they told me that they had never voted in their lives right they didn't think that they could vote because some of them are convicted felons and all of that so they just and, and it, that whole you know thing just scared them but they said that they were so inspired by the fact that i was open about my recovery and in my campaign that in inspired them to go and vote. And um, I don't think there's anything cooler than inspiring somebody to vote, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, especially people who didn't think that they could or be like, just really wasn't something that they
2: understood. So to switch gears for a second, the president has called for the death penalty for people who who sell opioids and and he's blamed immigrants for the epidemic. Mm -hmm. Does any of that get to the bottom of the issue at all
1: no i mean look we we've had the war on drugs for some of the longest running war in in our country's history right Mm -hmm. and it's never been effective it's Mm -hmm. never there's more drugs in the country now than ever there are more people addicted to drugs now than ever and we have spent billions and billions of dollars fighting this imaginary war on drugs and it has had no effect Mm -hmm. right at what point do we realize that the 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 way to stop the influx of drugs is to stop the demand for the drugs not the bringing in the drugs are always going to 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 be brought into this country right the wall isn't going to stop them because they're already tunneling under the wall and flying over the wall mm-hmm. and all of those things mm-hmm. right like there's there's many many ways that drugs are being brought into the country so we we have if we spent half of what we've spent on the war on drugs on the treatment of the people who are addicted to drugs, we would be in a much better place mm-hmm. today. But we have ignored the treatment end of the drug problem, and we focused on the criminal element of the drug problem, and it's gotten worse. Not better. Mm-hmm. It has not at all
2: gotten any better, right? So you're talking about, really you're talking about a war on addiction.
1: Yes, right? When do we, when do we start to fight that yeah. war?
2: Yeah, as right? opposed to a war on addicts. Uh, or a war on, you know, providers and suppliers, right. dealers. Because without the demand, the suppliers don't exist. Right. Right? If we reduce the demand, then the supply right. reduces automatically. So how do you think the justice system should treat people with substance abuse disorders?
1: I saw firsthand um while and I and, and I while I was there, um, you know, that the um supply of drugs was uh, nonstop in in prison, and the only thing that's different between drugs on the street and and drugs in jail is the price. Super expensive in jail, right? Mm. Because it's jail, and you know whatever. But the the point is that so people think that I'm going to send you know send I'm going to sentence this guy to jail, and that's going to stop him from being a drug addict. No, it's not. It's not. You yeah. know, it's that's not. That's not the issue, like the issue is that this person needs treatment and this person, you know, needs some, uh, some help in, in other ways, mental health, whatever the case is, right. Locking them up really doesn't do anything other than make them a better criminal because now you're locked up with career criminals who can teach you to be a better criminal. Like, you know,
2: if drugs are available in jail, it's pretty hard to make the argument that a wall at the border is going to keep them out of the country.
1: <laughs> I agree.
2: <laughs> I mean, when 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 you are living in a place that's nothing but walls around you and guards and everything else and drugs are just as available, it's pretty hard to imagine. Right. Um, so uh, finally, our, our sister show, Pod Save the People, recently covered the epidemic of overdoses occurring in public libraries, which has reached a point where library librarians are being trained in how to apply overdose medications. So when we're at a point where both librarians and firefighters are, are over, overwhelmingly dealing with these cases, or I would think we're at a point where there's a wake-up call to America here. It's time to do something before it's like an additional job of, of teachers and chefs and accountants and movie theater concession stand workers and... Mm-hmm. I mean do you feel like people are waking up to this now in a, in, a, in a different way?
1: I think that people are definitely waking up to it and and look you know the the library issue is a is an issue because that's where homeless people can go and 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 for the most part and there aren't there aren't any homeless real homeless shelters in the area. So especially for this area that, you know, the library isn't thing is an issue, but it's not just a library. I, I know restaurant owners and, and operators who have trained their staff in Narcan mm-hmm. administration. Uh, you know, I, I've known teachers that, that are trained in it. And, you know, this is, I don't know how much more has to happen before we as a country say, okay, enough is enough. Like, what do we have to do? Let's roll up our sleeves and let's, let's, let's make some progress in this area. But we we haven't yet gotten to that point. I I use the because um, I, I was I I remember this clearly um, as a as a younger man uh, watching the AIDS epidemic happen right and and how those people were ostracized and everybody was afraid of them and you know it was, that was a you know uh, an issue for for a certain class of people and uh, all of the same things that I hear about addiction mm-hmm. right and until all of those people came together and marched on Washington and and held rallies and said no more we deserve better treatment we are human beings all of that none of that changed the policy around it uh you know had eventually changed because they demanded it right and and we're we're not seeing that kind of activism um in the recovery world yet we're getting there um but you know the community started to buy in on the, with the AIDS activists and, and and celebrities came out and all of that that gave them credibility and gave them some you know uh, some power in the media and um, I I I have this dream that that's what what's going to happen in the recovery mm-hmm. world and until people start demanding that these policy changes happen and, and until people you know stops thinking that somebody's going to come and save them or or somebody else is going to do this like we need to as a community as a nation stand up and say listen this needs to change right it's not going to i feel like people can really um put some weight behind this and and run for office get get people out of office who who aren't doing anything to to mm-hmm. help in this area right mm-hmm. like run against them if you have to or get somebody else to mm-hmm. run against them but get them out of office like until we change that policy is not going to change The Medicaid debate is a perfect example of of the ignorance that that we face when it comes to these issues. They think that it's somebody else's problem. Right. You know, I've I've had people uh, that that servant office say to me, like, this is this is an underclass issue. This isn't an upper class or middle class issue. So I'm not concerned about it. (laughs) Right.
2: Yeah, that's really upsetting.
1: It's extremely upsetting. You know, you say to them. So I try to educate them on the fact that you know um, it's not, and and I'm an example of that, right? Like my my family was was middle class by the time you know I I got into high school. That my dad had worked really hard to get us there, right? And I had all the advantages. I played sports, and I I had all the advantages that any kid could want or have. And I had great supportive um, parents at home, my my dad, that was a perfect example of a hardworking guy that provided for his family, never did much for himself, a mom, the same, you know, that, that sacrificed for herself for, so her kids could have a better life. Right. So, but I still ended up addicted, right. I still ended up with these issues. It's not a moral thing. I was taught morals and values from a very young age. I grew up in a very strong community uh, of hardworking immigrant people that, you know, that taught me those things. And, So, you know, but what I've come to understand, like my mantra is like when it comes to these things is I can't I can't get angry. I have to educate. Right. Education is the key to all of this. Right. When people become educated on issues, then they can speak. About them in a way that's going to get other people educated on the issue. And eventually, we're going to have enough people educated on the issue that that we can make some real change.
2: And to be educated on this issue is to understand people's individual stories. I mean, really, like what you're doing with your colleagues in the house, you're not just throwing statistics at them. You're Throwing yourself at them.
1: Absolutely. Showing a real life, you know, uh, example of, of someone who struggled for many years with substance issues, right? And was lucky enough not to die. And, you know, uh, you know has, has uh, found a way to, you know, to, to be of service to others.
2: So I haven't told you this yet, but I had a dream last night that I was chopping things as we were making dinner and you were very proud of me. <laughs> it felt great.
0: The bar is very low.
2: <laughs> you were like, you were like, honey, wow, and I was like, yeah. And you didn't look at you me. Didn't,
0: you didn't cut your finger like that last time you tried to chop. Things. That
2: actually, the last in real life, the last time I tried, I did. But it didn't happen and in you the had dream. To stop
0: everything and throw. All
2: I was those like chopping like. I think You're they were bleeding like bleeding a lot. I, well, I think this time in the dream it was like. Green onions, like that's the long. Ones. I see.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
2: Sunbasket <laughs> has been rated the number one meal kit by leading publications, and it's no wonder why. They offer eighteen weekly recipes with options for paleo, gluten free, Mediterranean, lean and clean, vegan, and more. But for me, what matters is that Sunbasket helps me eat healthier. Simple as that.
0: Sunbasket makes it easy and convenient to cook healthy, delicious meals at home, no matter how much experience you have. In the kitchen. She's looking at me. <laughs> now you get more options than ever. Just go to the Sunbasket app and pick from 18 weekly recipes, easily cooked dishes like seared albacore tuna steaks with green beans and soft cooked eggs. Mm.
2: Yeah. I, so the funny thing here is that Even in the dream, I remember I was chopping, but I wasn't using like a cutting board. I was on a paper towel and you were like, I'm really proud of you, but that's wrong. (laughs) So like even in the dream, I (laughs) knew I knew I should use the cutting board because that's in the story in my dream. Anyway,
0: Um, the thing about these meals, actually, from Sun Basket is we've had other meal prep services before. And I was always like, why do they chop some of the things, but not all? It's just like they're they're humoring you like. They're just giving you something to do so so you feel good about it. I'm not I'm not saying that about you. I just was
2: No, it's okay. I clearly am not but they they really
0: like they don't create extra steps and that's that's really nice that they treat you like the adult that you are and just make it easy to make the healthy meals.
2: Yeah. Don't do it on a paper towel. Go to sunbasket.com slash five four today to learn more and get thirty five dollars off your first order. That's sunbasket.com slash five four for thirty five dollars off sunbasket.com slash five
0: four. There's nobody on the planet like you, so why would you buy a mattress built for everyone else? Working with the world's leading sleep experts, Helix Sleep developed a mattress that's customized to your specific height, weight, and sleep preferences so that you can have the best sleep of your life at an unbeatable price.
2: If I was going to be any kind of expert and I had like a top 10, (laughs) sleep expert would 100% be in there because you know, like if you meet a sleep expert, that person probably First of all, never yawns. They never (laughs) yawn. They never, like, their eyes are never red or anything like that. Like, they know how to sleep.
0: They have a lot of practice at it.
2: They like (laughs) they mean business when they sleep.
0: Okay, here's how it works. You go to helixsleep.com. You fill out their two-minute sleep quiz, and then they'll design your custom mattress. They can even customize each side for you and your partner. This would be huge for us because we don't like anything the same way when it comes to sleeping environment, like... The temperature, that's probably the biggest uh, struggle. It's the amount of wind one. coming at you, like Jason likes the fan on, and I I, I don't. Uh, and the light in the room, I mean, I just feel like this would be a, a great way to go.
2: I like, like, white noise.
0: <laughs> well, I don't. I don't. That's, that's amazing. We have uh, very different preferences.
2: So we've compromised, and we do it her way. <laughs> in 2018, Helix Sleep has taken customized sleep to the next level with the Helix Pillow. The all-new pillows are fully adjustable so that you can achieve perfect comfort regardless of sleep position or body type.
0: Helix Sleep has thousands of five-star reviews. Plus, you get 100 nights to try them out.
2: Go to helixsleep.com slash majority54 right now and you'll get up to $125 toward your mattress order. That's helixsleep.com slash majority54 for up to 125 bucks off your mattress order. helixsleep.com slash majority54. You've uh, listened to the podcast before, so you know that uh, each episode, uh, one of the things we do is we we run through a quick list of some of the arguments that our listeners might hear. Uh, some of them are going to be similar to the stuff that you've heard serving in the house, um, and the the talking points, the you know the right wing talking points from like your misinformed friends or from the propaganda machine, and uh, they're not always the most fun to listen to. They're frustrating, but it's important that we be able to respond to them because one of the goals of the show is to Make sure we give people tools to engage with the other side. So, right. so I'm going to rattle off a few of these opposition uh, arguments, and then we're each going to share, mostly you, um, constructive responses to these uh, not-so-constructive statements. So, okay. so the first one, we've talked a lot about Medicaid. Um, the first argument is that uh, Obamacare's Medicaid expansion caused the opioid crisis. Some data seem to support this connection,
3: and the idea has a certain logic. Coverage for Medicaid, or any kind of health insurance for that matter, plays a role in access to prescription opioids, just as it does for access to many other types of healthcare. Earlier analyses that Medicaid enrollees tend to be prescribed opioids more frequently than people with other kinds of coverage. But that could be because of other factors also related to insurance. It's important to remember that people who go on Medicaid are sicker than those with other forms of coverage, so they may have more pain that warrants opioids. It is also true that the 31 states that expanded Medicaid experienced a larger increase in drug overdoses between 2013 and 2015 than states that did not. As Mr. Johnson wrote, these data appear to point to a larger problem. But this is a weak foundation on which to base the conclusion that Medicaid is driving the opioid epidemic.
1: What's
2: your response when people say that?
1: My response is that um, we have we have lots of proof in lawsuits that have happened across the country to prove that Purdue Pharma and other uh, drug manufacturers actually caused the opioid problem. They flooded areas with. I think some some of the statistics that I've heard that there was like one place there was like a thousand Oxycontins for every resident or something outrageous like that, that made it to that area, right? There's Obamacare, you know, allowed people to to get uh, access to healthcare. Uh, The healthcare community and the big pharma are the ones that failed us and really actually um, in in some cases with big pharma um their their greed and their uh their lack of uh i guess morals i would say um you know is is the reason that we that we have the epidemic that we have today this has caused not only did it cause this opioid epidemic but what it has done now over the last 15 years or or more right, as we're going on 20 years now with this thing has created a generational issue with this substance mm-hmm. we have never in our history seen a dependence on a substance uh, like we're seeing with opioids alcohol comes very close and at times was similar but uh, the opi- opioid epidemic has we've never seen this
2: well, and also because anecdotally, you know, I've just heard so many stories about folks who, you know, they became addicted. And also with the overprescription of it, there's pills around the house. The availability. Right. Yeah. It was a huge issue.
1: And people didn't truly understand because what we believed was the
2: propaganda
1: of the of Purdue Pharma saying that we have this long-acting uh, opioid that's not as addictive as the previous which was a complete and total lie. It was more powerful and more addictive, right? And we were they were convincing doctors to by incentivizing them with trips to the Bahamas or whatever to push this this product, mm-hmm. right? under and and look, I'm not blaming doctors initially, they were lied to and and didn't understand, but over time the evidence became clearer and clearer that this is this drug was a problem, and we still continued to over prescribe it and we We continued to uh you know make billionaires out of people who knew they were introducing something into our society that was going to kill people mm-hmm.
2: and they didn't care well, also just Republicans have been trying to get rid of social programs like Medicaid for years, I mean, decades. Mm -hmm. So whenever somebody says something like this to me, I always say, so now now this is the reason they want to get rid of Medicaid, because it seems like they've got 40 other reasons they want to get rid of Medicaid. Maybe they just want to get rid of Medicaid. Maybe this is just a BS thing they made up in order to have another argument to throw in the pile. And then from now on, when anybody tells me that Medicaid and that Obamacare uh, caused Uh, the opioid epidemic. I'm just going to tell him about my friend, Phil, who says he's alive because of Medicaid. Mm, (laughs) I mean, I mean, (laughs) uh, okay. So the next one, the president loves to crow about how much he's done. He claims uh, to fight the opioid epidemic. He he'll talk about um, amounts of money that they're trying to spend. He talks about their policies that essentially are just like a tough on crime Mm -hmm. crackdown sort of policies. Um, And that's what they want to introduce. They want I mean, it sounds like they basically want people to go to jail for longer. We have pushers
3: and we have drug dealers that don't, I mean, they kill hundreds and hundreds of people. And most of them don't even go to jail. You know, if you shoot one person, they give you life. They give you the death penalty. These people can kill 2,000, 3,000 people and nothing happens to them. And we need strength with respect to the pushers and to the drug dealers. Some countries have a very, very tough penalty, the ultimate penalty. And by the way, they have much less of a drug problem than we do. So we're going to have to be very
1: strong on penalties.
2: You know, if someone says to you, well, look, President Trump has done a lot to fix this. What's your response to that?
1: Uh, My response is that. President Trump is trying to duplicate exactly what President Reagan tried to do back in the 80s. Right. It's tough on tough on drug dealers. Um, You know, Nancy Reagan's campaign, Just Say No. Right. Those those are two policies that have failed completely to be effective. And now uh president trump is trying to act like he's come up with the this whole idea but we've tried this already it didn't work where you know we're, we're making a mistake in the way that we're approaching this thing number one and number two i have not seen any policy or money that has come to new hampshire to help this issue so the, once again people are talking but nothing's really being done mm-hmm. and um I just uh, it's it's really frustrating uh, because people are people are under the belief that President Trump is doing something about this because he declared it a, a national uh, health crisis, right? Which is just words. It's not money. It's just words, mm-hmm. right? And this is what's happening. And he's the master of this, right? The master of illusion and and talk mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to issues, but no real action when it comes to issues.
2: Uh, one of the things I, I wrote about in my book is is this term that I use called political box checking, mm-hmm. and and my argument is is that checking the box in politics uh, can be worse than doing nothing at mm-hmm. all, um, and it all comes for me from we you know we would we would talk about this in the army we would say look if all you did was check the box it's worse because if if you didn't address the problem but you pretended you addressed the problem that means no one's going to come along and address the problem because people think it's been think addressed think it's been addressed yeah and that's to me what this is this is you know he he declared this uh, an emergency or whatever he declared mm. it and he made a big show of it and he and, and then he says ah oh, well because he's running a show not not really doing anything to run the country he just wipes his hands of it and 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 that is worse i mean that is worse than than doing nothing because now he's given people license to kind of check back away from it and go well that we checked that box and meanwhile there's people struggling there's, there's families being being hurt there's people dying um you know you'd almost wish that he would just say yeah i haven't addressed that yet yeah that would actually be better than what he has done
1: and if you look at what he has done in this area Um, you know, appointing people to cabinet position uh, that have no idea what the what this issue is about, like have no real experience in this area and they're going to form national policy on how this is addressed. It doesn't make sense to me. You know, President Obama had uh, Mr. Botticelli, who uh, himself was in recovery and was the first Uh, person that that served in that position that was actually in recovery. And they started to form some really good policy around this because they had somebody that understood the policy. And now we've got, I don't know, the the cabinet member of the week, it seems. (laughs) The fact is that until we have people in a position that truly understand this issue, just like any other issue, how can we effectively form policy around the issue? Phil, thanks for doing this. Thank you. This is this has been great. It's uh, been great to to sit here and, and get to know you as well.
2: A huge Team Candor thank you to the representative for taking the time to speak with us today. We hope Phil gets to keep serving the people of New Hampshire for years to come, both as a representative and as a counselor. You can follow along with his work on Twitter. He's at Phil Spagnulo NH. So that's Bill P-H-I-L, Spagnuolo, S-P-A-G-N-U-O-L-O, and then N-H. That's how you spell It's in it. the show notes. Yeah. You can just click. I hope everybody got that.
0: <laughs> hope you're writing it down while driving in your car.
2: <laughs> no, don't do that.
0: Hey, if you're driving in your car or you're traveling for a trip, we did this thing last season where we asked you to take a picture of where you're listening to Majority 54 and post the pictures to tag us, tag your new friends who you think ought to be listening and subscribing. So it would be awesome if you did that this week just to show us where you're listening to Majority 54.
2: Also, make sure you are actually subscribed and leave a comment about the show. I personally read all of them. Diana does, too. It's like sending us a nice card in the mail just to be a pal. And real pals, (laughs) by the way, would also stop by the iTunes store to rate and review the show. And you're a pal, right?
0: It's a it's a two way street because you know when you subscribe, whenever the podcast goes up, it it's like Jason saying, "Good morning." Yeah, it's, it's gonna be a great day. Good morning. <laughs> so a new season of Majority 54 means there's new merch in the Crooked Media store, oh. <laughs> and it's awesome. Uh, one of The listeners of Majority54 just sent us a better and improved logo and it was beautiful and we immediately wanted to put it on some uh, swag and it's available now. You got to check it out. And please thank Ryan Wilson. That's his name. He's at Ryan G. Wilson and he's a designer who's available for freelance work. I I don't know if anybody needs freelance work, but he's still paying off some school loans and does some pretty incredible things. So There will be links in the show notes uh, to his website and his Twitter handle as well.
2: Thank you, Ryan, from me. Uh, You can find me online. It's uh, on the Twitters, at Jason Kander. Or if you prefer, I've never mentioned this before. I hope Diana's okay with it. You can check out, you can check out at Diana Kander. And you can shoot us an email. It's hellomajority54 at gmail.com. I'm Jason Kander. Thanks to my wife, Diana, and our entire team at Majority54 for putting this together. And remember... We all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today.
0: Have a great week.
2: Yep.
3: Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Lucas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard Professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.